welcome to the Resolving Violence podcast, created to deliver current Canadian prairie-based research on violence and abuse to service providers, people with lived experience, and the general public. And Jordan. And if you'd like to learn more about factors that influence violence and the ways you can address them, let's get started. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Kelsey Taves, a registered doctoral psychologist who is currently practicing in Saskatoon. She works in both the private and public sectors, with her main areas of focus including the treatment of child and adolescent anxiety disorders and OCD, perinatal mental health, as well as the assessment for child developmental disorders and mental health concerns. Her research interests center around trauma, specifically the role that gender plays in experiences of and help-seeking for trauma. Hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, Kelsey. It's so great to have you on today, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your dissertation research. To start us off, can you explain what topic you were researching and what was motivating you to address that topic? Like, what kind of gap were you trying to address? Yeah, absolutely. So my dissertation was focused on understanding the help-seeking process that men go through when they've been in abusive relationships, specifically with women. I think there's a few different reasons why I decided to research this. One is just that it's super under-researched. In the past probably decade or so, there's been more and more research coming out, but there's definitely a huge gap specifically with men in abusive relationships. It's really been researched with women, um, but I think there's a lot of important nuances just with masculinity that need to be understood better. So that's what motivated me. Absolutely. Yeah. And so in your dissertation, you explore some of like the barriers to help seeking when it comes to intimate partner abuse. Can you talk about what those barriers look like and also how they differ between men and women? Mm -hmm. So what I did was really develop a theory of the process that men go through to seek help for abuse. And along that process, all of these different barriers came up. And one of the first ones, so one of the initial phases is just realizing the severity of abuse. Um, and that seemed to be a large barrier for men in particular, just because there's not a whole lot of awareness that abuse actually does happen against men. We don't often see it in media. We don't see it talked about very often. So that was one of the first hurdles is just recognizing that, hey, this is not okay. And I might be in an abusive relationship. Yeah. The second most significant barrier that a lot of men talked about was just the lack of resources that are available. So maybe they would decide, okay, I want to go out and seek some help. I need some legal advice or I need some therapy or I need something to support me. And just that process of finding someone who either has experience with men in abusive relationships or who offers services to that population was really tricky. And I think a lot of it, or it sounded like a lot of it was just due to that like general awareness. So they didn't know where to look because folks don't often advertise exactly what populations they yeah. work with. And if men are struggling to under or to recognize, hey, this is abuse because of all the societal pressures against men not being victims. Mm-hmm. And that can be really hard to even acknowledge or recognize that there are services out there for them. Um, so that was a, a really big barrier that came up is just like not really knowing where to look or not knowing if folks would be accepting or service providers would understand and take them seriously too. It Was there a specific group of people that men were typically seeking help from? Like, was it always like service providers or were they seeking help from like friends and family or other? That's a good question. My research specifically focused on professional help seeking or formal help seeking. So I didn't ask a whole lot about more informal, like talking to friends and family, but that 
definitely came up in men's stories of they would first seek help from someone that they really trusted, a family member or a professional who was also a friend, kind of ask like, hey, what are the options out there? But I think that difference between informal and formal help seeking is also really important to look into in the future because I didn't get to delve deep yeah. enough into that. Yeah. And so you talk about these barriers that men had. Do you see those same barriers with females who are victims of intimate partner abuse or do they look a little different? It's hard to say when I haven't specifically compared in research, but I think just based on comparing my model to what others, other models of women's help seeking for abuse, there were a lot of similarities. Um, but I think it really is just that intersection of the masculinity that amplifies some of the barriers. So something like recognizing that I'm in an abusive relationship is going to look different for a male than for someone of a different gender, just because of how we've been socialized to understand abuse or weighing the pros and cons of seeking help. The pros and the cons might look different for people of different genders, maybe because there are different resources available. Um, or people who focus specifically on women in abusive relationships and not men, or just the stigma that's really been associated with men in abusive relationships. A lot of the research talks about how men have been ridiculed or disbelieved or blamed for the abuse instead. So it really is more of just that the intersection of gender that plays out differently in the help-seeking process. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a bit more about the stigma that service providers have towards men seeking help? Mm-hmm. And there's been some really interesting research on that lately, quite a bit of more qualitative research and then specific quantitative on different biases. Um, and it's really looking at how do service providers understand abuse and how are we typically trained to understand abuse? And a lot of that uh, training is based on women's experiences of abuse and intimate partner relationships, understandably, because that has been a significant concern throughout the years. And that's really what our baseline default often is for understanding intimate partner abuse. Okay, so we kind of have like our default of what we understand abuse to be. Um, And a lot of these are unconscious biases, things that we don't recognize. Even when we're asking an intake, we might be more likely to ask a female if they've been in an abusive relationship than a man. So it comes out in some of those more unconscious ways. But there is also research suggesting that whether it's therapist or a social worker or a lawyer, whoever you're seeking help from, that there is a subset of providers who really do not believe men when they come and seek help from them and do stigmatize and shame and and blame and ridicule and all of those things. So that is documented in the research. And obviously, that was a big piece of me wanting to understand this better so we can help support service providers to create safe spaces for this population. Yeah, well, and that just it's like a cycle, right? It just perpetuates mm-hmm. further barriers to help seeking when there is stigma because then they finally decide like I'm going to seek help and then they go and seek help and Absolutely. and they're ridiculed and made to feel bad about it or not believed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it just keeps perpetuating itself. Very unfortunate and upsetting. Yeah. And it's hard to with like the stigma from family members and friends and all of those things were a big piece that the men in my sample talked about of barriers as well of like, not only are they worried that service providers won't accept them, um, they're also worried about what are my friends and family going to think? Are they going to think that I'm weak because I'm seeking help? Are they going to not believe and make fun of me because I'm calling this abuse? Are they going to take it seriously? So there's all those extra layers of worries about how other people are going to view their masculinity. Yeah, one thing I'm thinking just from my research background, I my previous research is on mental illness stigma and microaggressions. 
And so this is just making me think about kind of what microaggressions exist with this population, because I'm sure even the when you say that service providers might not ask a man if he has experienced abuse, that would be a microaggression. So I'm, I'm I'd be curious to see research about that in the future, because I'm sure it sure it doesn't exist right now. Microaggressions specifically in like kind of the mental health and abuse realm, I think are very understudied. Definitely. I think that'd be a great area to go to next. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Tell me about your methods because I feel like you use grounded theory. Um, and I think that's maybe a lesser known um, or understood methodology. So do you want to explain what you did a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so grounded theory is a qualitative methodology. Um, and I was using it really with the purpose of developing a theory. So I wanted to understand that whether it was a step-by-step process or a dynamic process, how men seek help. And that seemed to be the best way to understand that. It encompasses kind of the way that you're conducting your research and how you're analyzing your results. So I did interviews, I think it was with 10 men who'd had, who had sought help for abuse, um, and then two who had experienced abuse but hadn't sought help. So that really helped us understand, okay, what is that process that men go through? But also, what are those reasons that men don't seek help? So we can really make that a really firm up the theory more and understand the boundaries. So we went through the interviews and then you analyze a lot as you go along as well. So I'd read through the interview transcripts. I'd do some coding. I'd go back and do a second interview based on the information that I'd found. And it's a really dynamic process of like developing that understanding and digging deeper and deeper. Um, so I really, I really enjoyed the methodology. I think a lot of that because you get to hear people's stories. So I really that this is based and grounded in men's experiences of help seeking. This is based on their words and their experiences. And that it is really interesting to see those patterns play out over multiple participants. And then at the end of it, I got to share it back to some of my participants and say, does this fit? with what's going on? Like, does this make sense? And then that moment at the end of like, yes, like this is actually exactly the steps that I had gone through and all the things that I was thinking about and you really captured it. it was a really nice moment to feel like, okay, this is reflecting what is actually going on. And I think that's why grounded theory is such a cool approach because you do get to have that like intersection, that back and forth between the researcher and the participant and really build that understanding together. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, anytime I read a grounded theory paper, I just can't stop thinking about how cool it is. Like, mm-hmm. the results are always incredible. And knowing that the people who it is directly affecting are part of it and get to have their voices heard. And it's not just, well, quantitative studies have their place. It's not just numbers. You really get that story, right? And I, I love that. Absolutely. Especially when you're talking about an experience like abuse or a traumatic experience and folks often feel like they have lost their autonomy and don't feel like they have a voice. I think this is such a nice fit for that experience to really like pay respect to their lived experience and give them more of a voice after something that was so horrific. Yeah, definitely. So you've kind of touched on it already, but can you talk about your findings and kind of the resulting theory that came out of your presentation? Yeah, absolutely. There were five phases. um, And it was more of a dynamic process. I'll talk about it kind of linearly. But I think it's important to understand that this does look a little bit different for each person. And it's not like a step by step checklist. So the first phase was really just experiencing the abuse. So to enter the model, men had to have some type of abusive experience, they didn't need to recognize it as abuse yet. But I think this phase was interesting, just in highlighting the similarities of types of abuse 
amongst genders too. So men in my sample are talking about physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, psychological abuse. There's legal administrative abuse. So that's more of a, a newer term for abuse in the literature that's talking about partners using the legal system against their partner. So maybe lying to get custody or something like that. So all of those types of abuse came out in this sample, which really shows, I think, just a lot of yeah, like abuse looks very similar. It might be experienced differently, processed differently. But that was the first phase. Second phase was recognizing severity. So that was when they, the men in my sample were like, whoa, this is not okay. This is actually abuse. It was that kind of light bulb moment. And sometimes that was something that they came to on their own or a really significant instance of abuse in their relationship. Sometimes it was a friend or family member seeing something or commenting and being like, no, like this is not acceptable. What is going on? And really like providing them with their feedback. And I think that can be so helpful just having an outside perspective too, because when you're in it, it can feel really normal. And having someone outside say, this is not okay can be really validating. Did any of them talk about kind of like the timeline of how long it took them to get to that point of realizing like, yeah, this is bad? They definitely mentioned it. It's not something that I included a whole lot in my analysis. But the main piece was that it just differed for every person. So depending on the type of abuse, sometimes it would take longer depending on if there were children involved. Sometimes that was a big instigator for trying to get out of the relationship or recognizing the severity. So that was a very unique experience for each person. So they would recognize the severity. And then the third phase was realizing limitations, um, which I thought was a pretty interesting, that was more of a novel finding, that there's this point in time before seeking help that folks have to realize, hey, I can't do this on my own, or I've exhausted all of the resources that I have. So whether it was like maybe my mental health coping resources right now aren't matching up to the symptoms that I'm experiencing, I need to get some help from a therapist, or maybe I don't understand enough about the legal system. That's my limitation. I need to hire a lawyer. So it's really that moment of like, hey, what this situation needs exceeds what I, the resources that I have. And that was that like phase that needed to be resolved in order to move more towards seeking help. Um, and then there would be that actual decision to seek help. And that's also a lot more nuanced than I had previously thought. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. It's not just saying, hey, okay, I'm going to go find someone to seek help from. It's really this dynamic process and folks are going oscillating between exploring what options are out there, doing their research, maybe Googling, asking friends of like, do you know a therapist who works with men in abusive relationships? Do you know if there's any like programs out there that could help? So trying to do that investigating and then going back and forth between weighing the pros and cons of like, is this actually going to be worth it? And I think that like the pros and cons was also such an interesting, such a helpful area to understand better because we often think like, especially as service providers or like folks, like psychologists, we want to view help as helpful. Um, and that's not always everyone's experience. So maybe they've had really terrible previous experiences with service provider. So that is one of the cons on their list. Maybe they're really worried about whether people are going to think or they have folks in their family who don't support or don't believe their abusive experience. So that's another con. Maybe they've had incredible experiences in therapy and know that it's going to be helpful. So that's going to tip them over more to the pros side of things. So they're going back and forth and trying to figure out like, how accessible are these resources? Do I have the time? Do I have the money? Do I think they're going to be beneficial? And it's just like, just really intense process and driven by a lot of ambivalence 
too. I think of like, is this going to be worth it essentially? Well, and I think too, when you're in an abusive relationship, unfortunately becomes your norm. And so kind of your identity almost becomes tied to that. And it is when you're thinking about seeking help, it's like, well, what does my life look like? without this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that like that just reminds me of another finding from my research, but also that's been echoed in a lot of the literature. It's just that like that fear of like hurting your partner too. Of if I go to the police and then she gets arrested, what are the repercussions? Like I still care about this person. Yeah. What are the repercussions for my family, for my children? There's so many things that go into it. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about Um, Because I know what kind of happens in these situations is you forget that this was a relationship and there is love involved in a relationship. And that's usually why people are still there. Can you kind of talk a bit more about that nuance? Yeah, that's an area that I would really like to look more into as a next step for research because it's been mentioned throughout the literature. But I think especially in this project, it came out as a pretty significant barrier of like, this is like the parent of my children. This is someone I've been with for 10 years. There's also a lot of positive experiences that occur alongside a lot of the abuse. Um, So I think that's just something that especially as service providers, we need to be mindful of if it's not just black and white. When we're working with folks, whether they're wanting to leave the abusive relationship or they've left and they're reflecting back on some of the positives of it, I think those are all just things that we really need to hold space for and understand that that's part of the picture. It's not just good and bad. It's extremely multifaceted and there's a lot of feelings involved. Absolutely. And while we're on this topic, given your research in this area, your expertise, can you give service providers who are directly working with men exposed to intimate partner abuse one practice that they can work toward in the long term and one simple thing that maybe they can begin implementing today. Yes, that's my favorite part of this research is there's so many different things for service providers. I think probably because I'm a psychologist too, it gets me excited that this type of research can actually lead to a lot of change and then we can understand how to help folks better. Mm-hmm. I think more long-term, more long-term goal is probably just working on that self-reflection and getting more training in this area. Like I've said before, like this population experiences a lot of disbelief and service providers, non-service providers, we all have biases and stereotypes. We all have kind of that example of an abusive relationship that we based our understanding upon. And the best that we can do is just reflect on and understand those biases better. Like maybe if you have man come into your practice as a therapist and he discloses that he has been in an abusive relationship after the session, reflecting back and thinking like, how did I respond? What were my automatic thoughts that were popping up and really like processing those and understanding them better. And I think with that, like just seeking out different types of training just to understand, I think there are a lot of nuances in treatment with this population. So if we're engaging in trauma-focused treatment, for example, like we need to be mindful of the impact of masculinity and shame and use of the word victim and things like that. And that's going to add a whole another layer to how men are experiencing and processing after the abuse. So I think those are all things that we can like gradually work towards is just understanding this better and understanding better how to support 
And that would also be like an amazing next step is creating different types of training programs for service providers. And one other thing I wanted to ask, is there anything you would suggest to myself as a trainee? I'm just starting the clinical program. Do you have any advice for individuals at the trainee level specifically? Yes, good question. I think like a big one probably is just like continuing to practice that reflection. Because you can learn so much, especially when you have the time. Well, <laughs> not that you have a whole lot of time in the clinical program. <laughs> but when you're maybe working with fewer clients and you are in like full practice, you get to reflect afterwards and really dive deep into what that experience was like in therapy with that client. So even just like building that skill of reflection with any clients can then help you if you do end up working with a man in an abusive relationship to continue to reflect and understand your reactions. Yeah, well, that's that's what I was thinking is just like getting that practice of doing that earlier on. Mm-hmm. So once you're once you've graduated and you're fully practicing that it's not like this new thing where you're like, oh, I know I need to do this. Mm-hmm. But I'm not I haven't practiced it enough. So yeah, no, I, I think that's great advice. Yeah. And I think too, like something that's been helpful is just like shortcuts for our brain. Like if we're, if we recognize, okay, I have biases, understandably we're human beings. I have stereotypes. What are some ways that I can protect against that a little bit? So even just putting like in your intake, a specific question about, have you been in an abusive relationship that you ask regardless of the gender of the person in front of you? Because we know sometimes that when we're in it and maybe we're nervous and it's the first intake that we've done or things like that, our brains fall back on those stereotypes and biases. If you can build some of those protective things in there too, I think that can be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I love stuff like that because I know just in the clinical experience I've had so far, it you very much are like you're nervous, you want to do it right. And mm-hmm. so many things are running through your head and you're like, oh, I want to ask this and this and this. But then once you're actually in it, it's much harder to keep track of all that stuff. So I like those, Absolutely. those safeties where you're like, okay, no matter what, this is this is going to get asked. And I know I'm doing that, which may be bare minimum sometimes, but you know, you keep building on those things. And For sure. Yeah, it's a huge mental load. There's a lot of things to keep in your mind at once. So if we can create some shortcuts and help our brains out a bit. Like, that's great. All right. Well, do you have anything else to add before we close off for today? I don't think so. I just really appreciate you having me and giving me a chance to talk about this stuff because I get pretty excited. Yes. No, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Resolving Violence. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and their research or Resolve Saskatchewan, please check the show notes below. And if what you listened to today was helpful, please consider sharing it with colleagues and on social media so we can work collectively to resolve violence. Thanks again. Until next time.